Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Hi everyone and welcome back to our GG reading. This is Christ's Call to Discipleship by James Montgomery Boyce. Today we are looking at chapter 5 of the book, uh, focusing on page 59 to 73 and the topic is the path of service. The path of service. Here, James uh, begins by quoting from John 13, 13 to 17. It says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. John 13, 13 to 17. He begins, following the Lord Jesus Christ is an individual matter, but it is not individualistic. When we say that discipleship is an individual matter, we are saying that it is something that the individual himself must do. No one else can follow Jesus for you. Your wife cannot be your proxy. Your children can't read the Bible for you, pray for you, obey the Lord for you. You must do these things yourself. And if you do not do them, you are not a true disciple. Individualism is something different. Uh, The dictionary defines individualism as any doctrine or practice based on the assumption that the individual and not the society is the paramount consideration or end. Christianity is not individualistic because it is never merely the individual but also all other persons who are in view. The Lord indicated this when he responded to the question about the first commandment. He said that the first commandment is found in Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. But having spoken of the individual's relationship to God, Jesus immediately went on to speak of the individual's relationship to all other people, citing Leviticus 19.18. It says, And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, as you see quoted from Matthew 22:39 to 40. And here we begin with a new subtitle, Love on its Knees. Love on its Knees. What should our relationship to other persons be? Jesus said that we are to love them. But how is that love shown? Do we show love by some form of benevolent rule in the same way that taking a, that a king might be said to love his people? Do we love them the way a performer might be said to love his audience or the way an audience might be said to love the performer? Christ's answer was that we are to love others by serving them. Jesus demonstrated what he had in mind. John tells us that at the Last Supper, which Jesus observed with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion, the master got up from the table, laid his clothes aside, and then, wrapping a towel around his waist, 
He poured water into a basin, got down on his knees, and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And like, an action like that was so unheard of、uh, that the unspoken Peter object, objected, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, You do not realize now what I am going, I'm doing, but later you will understand. As you see in John 13, 6-7. That was not enough for Peter. And he obviously thought he understood well enough to rebuke the Lord as he had before on an earlier occasion. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. You see in Matthew 16, 22. Peter declared emphatically, no, you shall never wash my feet. However, when Jesus explained that, unless he washed him, that Peter could not Have any part with Jesus, Peter reversed himself, saying, Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. See John 13 9. He was still trying to tell Jesus how to do things. Jesus explains, explains that he only needed to wash Peter's feet, the very thing he had set out to do. Then he continued the foot washing. He rose, he put his normal A clothes back on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. They obviously did not. He continued, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Again, quoting from John 13, 13-17. Now, according to that explanation, following Christ means serving others in accordance with his own example. Now, here is a parable that James gives. His example was not just this one act of foot washing, but rather his entire earthly ministry. Of which the foot washing was a parable. Two chapters ago, when we were considering the meaning of self denial, I compared the description of Jesus in Philippians 2 5 and 11 with the analysis of Satan recorded in Isaiah 14 12 Satan said, I will go up, I will become like God, I will push God from his place. Jesus said, I will go down, I will become like man. I Die to save him. This is the one, this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest contrast of life. The contrast, contrast between Satan's way, which is also the way of the world, and God's way, which is embodied in Jesus Christ. This is precisely what we have in the incident of the foot washing. It is an illustration of the attitude that causes a person to serve others. If he or she is a follower of Christ, it is stepping down for others' benefit. Racy Stedman, a pastor of Peninsula Bible Church of Palo Alto, California, sees Christ's action as a parable of his entire ministry, comparing the verses from Philippians that I've just mentioned with what Jesus did for his disciples. John tells us that Jesus got up from supper. This had already been、uh, done in a far greater way when he rose from his throne of glory in preparation 
for his coming into the world. Second, we're told he took off his outer clothing. Uh, Philippians says that when he came into the world, he laid aside the glory that was naturally his, divesting himself to the outward manifestations of his Godhead and appeared as a true man so he would not blind us with the celestial glory. Next, he wrapped a towel around his waist. This was the uniform of a servant, a role uh, which Paul says he took upon himself. Finally, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. In a few hours, he was to pour out his own blood for the washing away of human sin by the atonement. The end of the parable comes after the foot washing in verse 12. They, there we are told, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. In the same way, after his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and was seated again at the Father's right hand. Hebrews says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, as you see in Hebrews 1, 3b. Stedman concludes, there can be little doubt that here Jesus was deliberately working out a parable for the instruction of his disciples. He was dramatizing for them the character of his ministry. He was showing them by this means what he had come into the world to do and what we would send them out to do or what he would send them out to do. When we see this parallel, we see that Jesus was not instituting a new sacrament to be known as the sacrament of foot washing, though some have supposed this. He was talking about the need for those who would follow him to take a servant role. He was saying, I have been a servant to you. Everything I have done has been to serve you. Since I am your teacher and master, and yet have done this, you also should play a servant role with one another. So we move on then to a new subtitle here, How to Serve Others Then, How to Serve Others. Now we must be practical at this point. Jesus served us by leaving heaven, taking on a true human nature, teaching and then dying on the cross for our sin. We cannot do that. So we must ask, how can we then serve others? In what way must we demonstrate the servant nature of our master? And I suggest the following. First one is that we must listen to others. We must listen to others. In uh, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he calls this the first paragraph of genuine Christian service. Is what he says. The first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. So it is his work that we do for our brethren when we learn to listen to him. Christians, especially ministers, so often think that they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others. That this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a great service than speaking. End of the quote. 
Now, the reason that listening is so important is not always that people have a great deal to say, but rather that they are desperate to have someone listen to them. Our world is characterized by a great cacophony of voices. People are shouting at us everywhere. They are shouting in commercials, in books and magazines, in signs by the roadside, at home, at work, at play. Everywhere we go, someone is trying to get some message across to us. No one is listening to what you have to say. Everyone is too busy talking. Now, for many people, life is like picking up a telephone, dialing a number, and getting a recording. We want to say, stop that thing and listening to me. But of course, no one is even listening to our complaints. So we have the unique phenomenon in our day of people paying other people to listen to them, which is what the psychiatrists or the psychological and counseling professions are all about. Counseling is a billion-dollar business. But it is not that counselors actually advise or guide people in the vast majority of cases. Basically, all they do is listen. They are paid to do what people in an area day did voluntarily. Christians should be the greatest listeners this world has ever had. But unfortunately, they too are often talking instead of listening. But even if they are listening, we are often listening only partially or impatiently as we wait for the person to stop so that we can get on with telling him what he should do uh, to do to get the right to get right with God or get his life in order. Is that not true? Think of conversations you have had recently and ask yourself if your mind was not wondering as the other person spoke, if you are not hoping he or she would make it short, if you are not anxiously restless until you got your turn to speak. Ask yourself if your conversations with others are not mostly you sounding off about what interests you rather than really hearing the other person and responding directly to what he or she has to say. If you're doing this, you should know that it is not only the other person who is harmed, you are harmed too. For as Bonhoeffer astutely points out, he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He'll be doing nothing but prata in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. And in the end, there is nothing left but that spiritual chatter and critical condensation arrayed in pious words. It is significant in regard to this part of Christian service that one of the tasks God has given his people is hearing one another's confessions. We see in James 5.16. To hear a confession is something that almost never is never practiced today, at least in the Protestant church. Protestants probably justify this as a rejection of what we regard as Catholic error, that is, the saying of confession to a priest and the receiving of absolution by him in Christ's name. We are probably right in identifying the erroneous aspects of this practice. But is that really the reason we fail to hear confessions? Is it not rather that we are too busy talking to listen what our fellow believer has to tell us? Is the other person not defrauded and harmed by our neglect? God listens to us and forgives us through the words of Scripture. We should listen to others as God listens to us so that we may speak the consoling words of God to them.
So the first one is listening. The second one is we must help one another. Now the desperation people have in need to talking to someone is not always merely their desire to be heard, though that is important in itself. It is also often the case that they need help. Their speech is really a cry for assistance. If we stop to listen to people, we will find that their needs come rushing to the surface and you have infinitely more to do than merely wash their feet. There will be people to feed, thirsty ones to whom to give a drink, naked people to clothe, lonely people to visit, sick and dying persons to cater for, and so on for a host of other needs and obligations. The problem is that helping people is seldom convenient. We have our own schedules and our own hours and days are full. This is perhaps a bit truer of our time than earlier times due to the frantic pace of modern life. But our situation is not fundamentally different from what people of earlier days experienced. It is always inconvenient to help others. It was inconvenient for the Samaritan in Jesus' parable who helped the poor man who had fallen prey to thieves. He had his own journey. He too was on the way to Jericho. He too had business or family obligations. He interrupted this. He stopped his journey, attended to the wounded man, deviated from his itinerary in order to take the victim to an inn, spent the night, paid for his care, and then planned to return the same way after his own business was settled. This is what service means. It means putting others' well-being ahead of our own. Again, Bonu Falites. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are, distant, they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. They do not want a life that is crossed and bulked. But it is part of the discipline of humility that we must not spare our hand where it can perform a service and that we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but we allow it to be arranged by God. End of the quote. The third thing is that we must give to others. Now the word says, what is mine is mine, and what is yours is mine if I can get it. The Christian says, I have nothing but what I have first received from God, and therefore I'm only a steward of my possessions. What is mine is yours if you have need of it. In the history of church, there have been Christians who have taken giving to others to the extreme of selling all that they have had and distributing it to the poor or giving it to the church for its administration. At one point, the Christians in Jerusalem did this. This is in Acts 2, 44 to 45. This is a form of Christian living that God may call some to uh, at one time or another. But it is clear that this cannot be the whole of Christian obligation. For if all Christians in every place and at all times sold their goods and lived a common life in near poverty conditions, no one would have had anything to give to others again. To give to others does not mean we must give everything or even that we should stop making money through honorable work. On the contrary, for some of us, it could mean trying to make more so we'll have more to give. It means that we must be generous with what we have. 
not counting it our own, but rather that which God has given to us for others' benefits. Then too, we must not forget that the best giving is often giving ourselves. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians about financial matters, he commended the Macedonian churches for their rich generosity, explaining, And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will, as we see in 2 Corinthians 8.5. Clearly, the Macedonians were able to be generous with their money because they had first been generous with themselves. Having given themselves to God and others, their material goods followed naturally. The fourth, the fourth thing is we must bear one another's burdens. Now, the Bible is able to express the whole work of Christ for us as bearing our burdens. Surely he hath borne our burdens and griefs and carried our sorrows. We see in Isaiah 53.4 KJV. So it is not surprising that he can describe the whole of the Christian life as bearing the cross and admonish us to carry each other's burdens, saying, And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, as you see in Galatians 6.2. As small groups are particularly important if you are to do that effectively. For how are we to carry others' burden if we do not know where they are? How are we to learn about them unless we have a context in which Christians can confide in one another honestly? There are many problems at this point, one of which is our natural reluctance to let our hair down and confess what is bothering us. If we have problems with our schoolwork or our children, we hesitate to say so because admitting to what may be a failure leaves us vulnerable. We worry about what others think. Again, if we are having difficulties with a husband or wife, we are afraid to admit it. We keep it in, and the problems build to the point where they sometimes prove unsolvable. How are Christians to share their burdens in such cases? The easiest way is through building acceptance in a small group setting. There is another advantage to the small group. Often people come into orbit who have tremendous problems. They need so much physical help or psychological and emotional rebuilding that one person or even one family simply can't meet the need, even with the best of will and intentions. In a small group, the task is distributed, and the one being helped can get back on his or her feet without developing an unbalanced and an unhealthy dependence on one person. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's study of these themes, there is a useful development of bearing in the area of another person's freedom and sins. The freedom of the other is often a burden because it collides with our own autonomy. Anyone who has ever tried to help another needy person knows what this means because one of the things that makes helping another so difficult is that the person generally doesn't contribute to the process and in fact usually fights against it at our expense. He refuses to fall in step with us. So we find ourselves having to shoulder that burden as well. In a previous chapter, we talked about denying oneself and taking up our cross. There's probably no area of the Christian life where this is more necessary or more difficult. To bear another's burdens, particularly those of an extremely disoriented and needy person, means involvement with him or her at our own cost and inconvenience which means we will only be able to bear it by a genuine crucifixion 
of ourselves. Now what about sin in the other person? It is not just freedom that inconveniences. Sin divides. It divides the individual from God, but it also divides the individual from all other individuals. In this case, ourselves. In trying to bear the other's burdens, we often sin against and a barrier comes up. The only way we can deal with this is by the recognition that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. As you see in Romans 5 verse 8. Jesus did not wait for us to get better or even repent of our sin. He died for us while we were still rebellious. In the same way we are to die for we are to die to self for others, knowing that it is by the example of such selfless love that God generally wins sinners to himself. Bonhoeffer writes, since every sin of every member burdens and indicts the whole community, the congregation rejoices in the midst of all the pain and the burden the brother's sin inflicts. That is, it has the privilege of bearing and forgiving. The fifth one is that we must speak God's truth to the other person. Now, when I began this listing of what it means to serve others, I said that Christians tend to talk without listening, assuming that they already know what is about to be said and they already have the answer to it. I stress that service begins with real listening. That is true. It is an important first requirement. But having said that, we need to realize that there is also time to speak and that Christians are distinguished from others at this point by having something genuinely helpful to say, because they can speak God's words as they have been heard from Scripture. Now, this gives us uh, this gives us service far ahead of secular psychologists and counselors. Now, they listen often better than we do. They offer wise advice or counsel, but the help of a purely secular counselor stops there. See, the Christian, once he has heard and understood, he can go out to share the cure for the problem or the hope for the despair given by God in the Bible. Many persons have a natural reluctance to instruct another person, particularly another believer. They are conscious, as we should all be, that they are often confused themselves. But fear of our own proneness to failure should not keep us from saying what is necessary at the proper time. The Christians at Rome had not benefited from apostolic instruction when Paul wrote to them. But he said, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another, as you see in Romans 15, 14. Bonhoeffer is right on this point, and I quote, when, Where Christians live together, the time must inevitably come when in some crisis one person will have to declare God's word and will to another. It is inconceivable that the things that are of uttermost importance to each individual should not be spoken by one to another. It is unchristian to consciously deprive another of one decisive service we can render to him. If we cannot bring ourselves to utter it, we shall have to ask ourselves whether we are not still seeing our brother gabbed in his human dignity which we are afraid to touch and thus forgetting the most important thing that he too, no matter how old or highly placed or distinguished he may be, is still a man like us, a sinner in cry need of God's grace. He has the same great necessities 
that we have and he needs help encouragement and forgiveness as we do and of God. Now at times we might uh, we must pick words that sound harsh to the one who has to hear them. It is difficult to speak such words. More often it is our privilege to speak words of comfort that the Bible contains. We may have to speak of sin, but we can always speak of God's grace and forgiveness. We can tell our brother if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgive us our sins and purify us, purify us from all unrighteousness, as we see in 1 John 1.9. We can assure him that if he has confessed his sin, God has already forgiven it for Jesus' sake. We go to number six, and here is that we must restore one another. We must restore one another. Now, speaking the truth in love, which includes the exposure of sin and the pronouncement of forgiveness for the one who repents of it and turns to Christ, has at its objective the complete restoration of the other person. In aiding in this, we perform what is perhaps our greatest form of service. Now, here we get closest to what Christ's example of foot washing was all about. In his explanation of his actions to Peter, we learn that Jesus chiefly had in mind cleansing from the defilement of sin followed by the restoration of the one sinning. When Jesus had told Peter, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash their feet, his body is clean, and you are clean though not every one of you, this in John 13.10. It was evident that he was not thinking about physical dirt, but about sin and the way to be cleansed from it through the justification and subsequent growth in grace. He was telling Peter that he was a justified person and therefore he needed only to be cleansed from the contaminating effects of sin and not from his sin's penalty. Now the image is one is of an oriental who would bathe completely before going to another person's home for dinner. On the way, because he would be shod in sandals, because the streets were dirty, his feet would become contaminated. When he lived at his friend's home, his feet would need to be washed, but not his whole body. In a parallel way, those who are Christ's are justified men and women, but they do need constant cleansing from their repeated defilement by sin in order that the fellowship they have with the Father and the Son may not be broken. It was Jesus washing of his disciples' feet, not their heads or entire bodies, that Jesus commended to us by his, Jesus commended to us by his example. If we carry this out in spiritual terms, as we must, we must seek to restore others from sin's defilement. We must do as Paul admonished the Galatians. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself. Or you also might be tempted. And we see in Galatians 6 verse 1. Now how do we seek to restore a brother who has fallen into some sin? How do we seek to wash the feet of such a one? We are to take the word of God and then gently, ever so gently, apply it to him. Desiring that he might respond to it by the grace of God. Notice that I said gently. In his commentary on the verses, H. Uh, Harry A. Ironside points out that if we are going to wash another's feet, we ought to be careful of the temperature of the water. You will not go to anyone and say, 
Here, put your feet into this bucket of scalding water. Now you would ask him to place his feet in a bucket of ice water. It is just as bad to be hot in approaching another person as it is to be cold and formal. Stedman points out that in trying to cleanse others, some Christians attempt to do it without water at all. They try to dry clean feet. They scrap them of dirt and unfortunately, sometimes they take the skin with it. Instead of this, we are to approach the other in meekness and great love, realizing that we are capable of the same sin ourselves. So a final uh, subheading here, the path to happiness. Now the last uh, lines of our text deserve special attention. For in them, Jesus speaks of being blessed or happy and gives the secret of such happiness. Now that you know these things, he says, you'll be blessed if you do them. Now most people want to be happy. And they suppose, as sinful men and women do, the way to be happy is to be served by other people, to have them meet our needs. Jesus says the opposite. He says the happiness comes in serving others. Will you serve others? Will you do what Jesus tells you to do? For most Christians, the problem is at this point. They know Christ's teaching to the extent that most of what I have written in this chapter is not fundamentally new for them. They know they should follow the Lord in self-denying service to other people. They know they should listen to help, give to, support, instruct, and restore others. This is, that is Jesus' way. They even know that they will be blessed by Jesus if they do it. Yet although they know these things, they do not do them, but rather continue to live for self, which is the way of the world. A number of years ago, shortly after a very severe drop in the stock market, I was talking to a man who had approximately half a million dollars invested. Did the drop affect you greatly, I asked him. I said, it certainly did, he told me. Did you have any idea that the market might be going down, I asked. That's the funny thing, he replied. About two months before the market trembled, when the Dow Jones was still over 1,000, some of us who invested together were meeting. I remember saying that the market simply could not continue as it was. I said it would have to go back down. Surprisingly, everyone agreed. When I said that we ought to sell now, they agreed to that too. But you know what? Nobody did it. None of us sold. So when the bottom dropped out, all of us were left with large losses. See, success in the Christian life does not come from mere knowledge alone. Though knowledge is important, it comes from doing what we know we should do. To follow Jesus means serving others. This path leads to blessing. We'll be happy only if we walk in it. That is the end of our reading today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gracepoint Church Podcast. For more information and for past episodes, please check our website, Gracepoint Church.